Revelation chapter 13, verse 11 through 18. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak, and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand of the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast, or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. All right, let's pray and look at this text. Father, thank you for the, the gift of the book of Revelation. We even thank you for this very interesting passage Uh, just read for us by Dan. Uh, We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us make sense of this, that we would listen to your word and grow in wisdom because of it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you are part of some niche Christian literature or movie fan club, this is like one of your passages right here. We got a beast coming out of the earth. We got this thing called the mark of the beast, which if you're not really in that group, you may think, what in the world is that? What's the mark of the beast? I'm going to tell you what the mark of the beast is, okay? Just have to wait. Um, and 666, what is all this stuff? We'll get there. Um, we saw a beast, when Dan read, coming out of the earth. This week, I was Taylor and I were part of a denominational meeting, and I was anticipating a little bit of conflict uh, you know we've been at we've been at odds over something as pastors sometimes are uh, and so the, the the nerves are frayed a little bit and I was anticipating conversations that I didn't maybe want to have and I was trying to I want to in my better moments I actually want to be like Jesus right um, so I was reading this passage from James 10 James 3 verse 10 uh, well I'm sorry verse 13 James 313 <laughs> who is wise and understanding among you By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but this kind of wisdom is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So the picture there is there's two ways of wisdom. There's a wisdom from above, a heavenly wisdom, 
which reflects Jesus and brings a life-giving presence into a situation. And then there is a wisdom from below, which James says is earthly, demonic, unspiritual, uh, human. And I think that's part of what's get, being getting, gotten at here with this picture of a beast coming out of the earth. It's a way of wisdom. It's an ideology that is earthly that is unspiritual, that is not in view of the lordship of Jesus, that is human wisdom. And uh, uh, last week after the sermon, somebody said to me, uh, you know, there wasn't much levity in that sermon. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of joy in that sermon. I'm like, well, we're talking about spiritual warfare. How are you talking about warfare with joy? I mean, you can be hopeful, but... Um, for the last four weeks in Revelation 12, we had two sermons on the dragon pursuing the people of God. And then last week, the, the, the beast from the sea, and this week, the beast of the earth. So I don't know how to bring levity to that situation. Sorry. Um, now, I, I did tell the first service, I promise next week I will have more levity because I won't be preaching. Taylor will be preaching, so it's on him. Uh, so if you recall, Revelation 12, the dragon, Satan, goes off to make war on the woman. The woman is, in the Old Testament, it is the faithful Israel uh, who has many spiritual offspring. That is picked up in Isaiah 54. That same theme is picked up in Galatians 4. Those who are followers of Jesus are the offspring of the woman. You are in that passage if you're a follower of Jesus. And the dragon... Satan desires to destroy the son, Jesus. He cannot get the son, so he goes off to make war on the woman. That is the offspring of the woman. That is you. So that we said that we are in, in a world that is in, locked in some sort of spiritual warfare with a dragon in ways obvious and less obvious, in ways direct and indirect, in organized, in uh, chaotic, in systemic ways, in pointed ways, makes war on the people of God. And he makes war on this world. He does so through, through keeping people blinded in unbelief. And once you're in Christ, he does so with accusation. Accusation to your conscience that the gospel really isn't effective. It didn't really make you whole. Jesus really isn't good enough. You need something else. You need something in addition to this. So that's what it says in Revelation 12, um, 17. And the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And then it says he stood on the shore of the sea. And you remember we saw last week what comes out of the sea is basically one of Satan's two main ways of doing this. Last week it was the beast of the sea, which we saw was, we might say, organized human earthly authority that gets corrupted by the enemy to be used against the people of God. Many of the people in the, as the original hearers were hearing this. Caleb just prayed for some of our mission partners who actually do experience this right now in real time. Okay? We maybe don't experience that so much, so obviously, but we're not exempt from that. The call against this organized human power, which we said had many expressions through history. The pictures in Revelation are like, um, are like dynamics or motifs or patterns that, that show up, and they have many expressions. So this, this organized human power looked like the, the Roman government. It's looked like many governments through history. 
It, sometimes it looks like individual rulers who, who pursue the people of God, who oppress the people of God. It could be other types of movements. Remember in Revelation 2, there were trade guilds who would not allow the, the Christians in, I think it was Smyrna, to trade because they didn't worship the way they wanted them to worship. Organized human power. And the call against that last week, faithful endurance. Faithful endurance. We want to endure against the earthly powers without becoming like them. Right? We want to stand against them through gospel-centered, with gospel power, right? The gospel, prayer, love, prophetic witness when necessary, and preparation to suffer, just like Jesus did. This week, there's a second beast that we see. And again, there might be more dynamics. There definitely are, but these are the two main ones God pictures for us in Revelation. This is a second beast. This beast is coming out of the earth. Again, I think the, the picture is like it's earthly from below, worldly, growing out of a fallen world and a cursed ground, if you remember Genesis 3. And here it is, Revelation uh, 13, verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. So, First thing, it tell, we're told that this beast looks like one thing, but really is another. It looks like a lamb. It's got two horns like a lamb. Maybe that's a, maybe that's a reference to the two witnesses uh, who were the, the church back in Revelation 11. I don't know. But we know who the lamb was in Revelation. In Revelation 5, the lamb is Jesus. So what this is saying, it, at least, is like it looks pretty good at first. This beast looks like perhaps even like Christ, that it's peaceful. But when it speaks, when you listen to it, when you hear what it has to say, you're like, oh, that's the voice of the dragon. And I need to tell you, I, I made a mistake this week in our bulletin. I, I got the, Lauren Ebel does the, uh, the graphics for us, and she, each week she gives me several to choose from, and I just made the wrong choice this week. And that this graphic on the front is like more of a, it's a beastly beast. I think in reading this this week, it should have looked more like a lamb. It should have looked really good. Because we're, the call here in this passage at the end is wisdom to discern, right, that not everything good looks good. Naive people think everything that's good looks, is good. Naive people think everything that says it's good is good, right? The call to wisdom here is to say, okay, listen. Is this the voice of the dragon or the voice of the lamb? Right? Not everything that presents itself as good, as right, as just, as true, as loving, as authentic, as beautiful, is those things. What's required is a Christ-centered wisdom to discern, lest we get caught up in them. We want to see here that what's billboarded front and center with the second beast is deception. Deception. Looks like a lamb speaks like a dragon. Verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So this second beast is, uh, has delegated authority from the first beast and this is prophet language here. The Old Testament prophets prophesied about God in his presence, right, with his delegated authority. And in fact, later in, the, in Revelation, Revelation 16, 19, 20, maybe 21, this, this beast is called the false prophet. 
And in the Old Testament, true prophets had delegated authority to testify to God, so to encourage people to worship the true God. This beast, this false prophet, has delegated authority from the dragon to induce and to to cause people to worship the dragon or the, the false god. And particularly, perhaps, the godlike quality of the beast. If you remember last week, one of the heads of the beast had a mortal wound that had been healed, apparently. And we already saw this in the book of Revelation, where the lamb, Jesus, had a mortal wound, crucifixion, from which he was healed, resurrection. This is a way that the beast counterfeits the son. And we're going to see a theme of counterfeiting be picked up here. I put an a, a quote, if we just like, what is the beast of the earth, okay? If I can get to one spot, again, we're not, there may be multiple manifestations of this dynamic in people in history. And I know from some of your backgrounds, you want to look off in the future and see an antichrist. You've heard of that phrase, the antichrist? Is the antichrist coming? Is the antichrist coming? Some traditions would say, well, let's push us all in the future and see a singular entity called the antichrist. If that's the case, and I'm not saying it is, I'm not convinced, that would simply be a further expression of what's been expressed all through history. We'll see in 1 John that there have been antichrists, lots of them already. Uh, So there are multiple expressions of this dynamic of the beast of the sea from last week, but this week, the beast of the earth, theologian, a British theologian named Michael Wilcock, I put that at the top of your insert on the other side, on on the right side, he says, the beast from the earth is, in modern parlance, the ideology, whether religious, philosophical, or political, which gives breath to any human social structure organized independently of God. So let me just read that again. The beast of the earth is the, any ideology, whether that's religious, political, philosophical, that gives breath or gives life to any human social structure organized independently of God. So last week we saw the beast of the sea would be those organized human social structures organized independently of God, which then get corrupted, even though they're meant for good, right? God gives them as a gift to people. Organization's fine. Government's okay in itself. But it gets corrupted and used by the dragon against the people. That's the first beast. The second beast is the ideology that supports all that. It's the propaganda behind it. If you will, it's the, the second beast is the hype man for the first beast. That makes sense. It is the one that uh, it collects all these ideas in a culture and somehow makes it sensible for people to say, I think we should worship the first beast. Not that anybody's saying that out loud, but this, that's the inclination of everyone. And the, the second beast is like, yeah, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. So it's all the ideology around Uh, that makes it sensible to give yourself and your allegiance to a human social structure organized independently of God. We'll talk about some of those specifically in a little bit in the end. Uh, Let's see here. This beast, remember God has given this vision. This isn't what the beast looks like on its terms. God's saying, let me tell you from a heavenly perspective what this looks like, John. Then you do the work of interpretation. When God gives John this vision, then to us, this beast, this propaganda machine, is pictured as very powerful. Very powerful. Verse 13. 
It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So this beast acts like a legit prophet with power. In the Old Testament, Moses was able to part the Red Sea. It was a sign that led to people to say, he is a real prophet. Yahweh must be real. Elisha, the prophet, has a famous you know, story where he throws an axe head into the lake and it doesn't sink, it floats. And by that sign, people are like, oh, this guy's real. Elijah, if you remember in 1 Kings 18, calls down fire from heaven on the prophets of Baal. And the people are like, oh, he really is legitimate. This God he's pointing to really is true. And so this is the same apparent power the beast has in this vision, right? He calls down fire from heaven, right? It looks like this beast is pointing to something true and real. And it's giving credence and giving authority to this false prophet. The, the, the earthly ideologies which would lead us to support the beast, okay? And then what about this whole thing, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived? Okay. This is, all we have here, I think, is a great literary compression of the book of Daniel. Remember, we keep saying, where do we find the the best interpretive guidelines for the book of Revelation? Old Testament. Two books in particular, we've seen Zechariah and Daniel. Remember what Daniel uh, says. We saw it a couple weeks ago. In Daniel 7, the people of God are being oppressed, and Daniel has this vision, or there's this vision where there will be four successive kingdoms that oppress the people of God, and they're described sequentially like one's like a leopard, and then one's like a bear, and one's like a lion. I didn't get the order right, but you get the picture. And then the final one is this beast that's got ten crowns and blasphemies on its head. And then last week we see the beast from the sea. It's a compendium of all those things together. Picturing these worldly organized powers Satan uses to oppress the people of God. So there's this picture in Daniel of those four things. And another place in Daniel, there's a statue where those four things are in a statue. Head of gold, chest and bronze and all that kind of stuff. And then another place in Daniel, you have uh, King Nebuchadnezzar who makes a golden statue of himself on the plain of Dura and requires the Jewish people to fall down and worship. Requires all the people of whom were many faithful Jews. An image of himself, say, you must worship. It's just all, it's like it's compendium of all these things together. And you may, know, this, may this, know the story. Faithful Jews actually cannot do that. And many will not do that. And some who won't do that. Three, and you may know the story, and I'm just going to read a little bit of it because I love the, I sort of love the moxie that these guys have in response. The name Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know these names. So what happens is Nebuchadnezzar, he has this, um, this uh, big statue of himself made of gold. He said, we're going to play the music. We're going to have a worship service, and you're going to fall down and worship. And if you don't, you know, off with your heads. We're going to feed you to the furnace. And so he does it, and he doesn't know who doesn't worship, but some people come to him and say, hey, there's these three guys. They refuse to do it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's their Babylonian names. I can't remember their Hebrew names. And um, so they come, Nebuchadnezzar hears this, he is furious because he sees it as an affront against him, not against the statue, because the statue represents him, the statue is his image. 
And they're not worshiping him, the organized power of the land. And he comes, he brings them, he said, guys, we're going to try this again. We're going to do this worship thing again, and when you hear the music, you are going to fall, and you are going to worship, and if you do not, I'm going to throw you in the furnace. And then he says, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Now, if you read the book of Daniel, you know these kings make stupid comments like this all the time. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, these are like teenagers, right? Godly teenagers. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. We have no need to answer you in this matter. So they're like, he said, who's going to rescue you? And they said, we don't have to answer you. Love it. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I just love that courage that those young men showed. And as the story goes on, they do get thrown in the furnace, and there is one who goes into the furnace with them, rescues them. We take that to be an Old Testament picture of Jesus. That, all that's compressed, all that book of Daniel is compressed here. I think that's what the, the image is getting at, right? The uh, convinces the people to build an image of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. That is the beast of the sea, the compendium of all these things. And maybe even convinces them it's their idea, convinces them. They're like, this is a good idea, let's do this. Not knowing that what's behind that is a dragon. So I think this is a picture of earthly powers that people bow down and worship the beast by, and and then the, the beast of the earth says, yep, that's the right move. And it makes sense. And again, we're going to talk about a few of these in a second. Verse 15, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Right? Again, we're not looking for a, it's not a secret code here. It's just, it's just an image. It's just a vision. The beast seems to give life to the image, it seems persuasive in deceiving the people by this even mimicking the work of the Holy Spirit. If you remember in Ezekiel 37, it's the Spirit who gives life to dry bones, the breath of God. In fact, in the Old Testament, the concept of the Holy Spirit was the breath of God. Here, this is the breath of the dragon, giving life to an inanimate reality. Again, counterfeiting the work of God. Verse 16. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both slave and free, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. Okay, this is the mark of the beast. Okay, by a show of hands, anybody, has anybody heard that phrase before? Where are we at here? Okay, all right, so, all right, the mark of the beast. Uh, What is the mark of the beast? A lot of interesting speculation around this. Maybe it's a barcode on the forehead. Have you heard that? Tracking bots in vaccines that we're forced to get. Credit card microchips in the hand. And I was thinking, you know, I can pay for my coffee with my Apple Watch. Just, it's not very far from here to here as if it's an implant. Wouldn't that be terrible? I think it would be great, honestly. You never have to bring your wallet anywhere. You may think I'm naive. Um, I think... 
Okay, I think a little Bible interpretation discipline will help us be a little bit more clear on what this is. The first question we ask when we come to something uh, in Revelation that's a little bit confusing to us is, that, is there anything in the Old Testament that says anything about this sort of thing? Answer, well, yes, actually there's quite a bit. In Exodus chapter 13, when God leads the people out of slavery in Egypt, uh, brings them out of slavery toward the promise and out of slavery into freedom, he says, let this deliverance be to you as if it was on your forehead and on your right hand. This, mem- this remembrance of this deliverance on your forehead, between your eyes and on your hand. And that's why down through the ages, some, in part, why some conservative Jewish uh, folks have make, make these tephilim or phylacteries, little boxes. They have a little part of the scroll of the Torah, including that passage in it, rolled up and hang it on their forehead or on their right hand during worship, right? Because it's so little. But it's, it's, let me just say, every Jew reading this would be like, oh, yeah, forehead and hand. I got that. That's part of our culture. Good. Um, Exodus 39. The priests wore turbans and they had gold plate on their forehead that said, holy to the Lord. Holy to the name of God, Yahweh. Kadosh Allah Yahweh. That's what it would have said. Uh, So the name of God would be on their foreheads. Remember in Revelation 1, Jesus makes all of his people uh, a kingdom of priests. You are a priestly kingdom. You are considered priest to God. You should call to mind the garb of the Old Testament priest. It is as if you have the name of God on your forehead. You're consecrated to him. You're set up. His name is on your forehead if you were really a priest. In Ezekiel 9, those who are tr- there's a vision to Ezekiel that those who are truly repentant over Jerusalem's sin, uh, the, an angel goes through and marks them on their forehead with a mark. And then if they don't have the mark, the, there's judgment falls upon them. In Revelation 7 and 9 already, we see followers of Jesus who are sealed or marked on their foreheads. So we keep asking the question, what's the mark of the beast? What's the mark of the beast? That's the wrong first question. The right first question is, what's the mark of the lamb? That is the Holy Spirit, right? That's the mark. That's the seal, God's stamp on us, and it Another way to say it, God's name on our foreheads. Not just from Exodus 39. Look at the very next verse after this passage. Revelation 14.1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000. If you go back to Revelation 7, that's the whole church. With him, the whole church, who had its name, his name, and his father's name written on their foreheads. So there's a picture in Revelation. The followers of the Lamb have the Lamb and the Father's name. They're marked by that name on their foreheads. Right? Everybody else is marked by a different name. Now we're actually told, I don't know if you saw this, what the mark of the beast is. Verse 17, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now, we'll talk about that in a second. But the name of the beast is simply is a sign of covenant, fidelity, and identity. Either we have covenant identity and fidelity to the lamb or to the dragon, to the lamb or any other earthly ideology or power, to the lamb or something else. It's a very um, audacious claim that we're marked by something. 
were marked by Jesus or something else, by Jesus or the dragon. And the great news is you can trade the mark of the dragon for the mark of Jesus anytime you want. It's called coming to Christ, salvation, embracing the gospel. I'm just trying to get into the, to the meaning of this here. Um, The work, of the, the, the work of the beast on the earth is to put a lot of pressure on the people of God for this to be the case. Sometimes there's economic pressure. Back in Revelation 2, that was the case. Unless the people of God worship the right way, they would receive a pressure on them where they could not trade. Most of us don't experience that. Again, some of our mission partners do. Right? Where they, if, they don't, if they don't bow to certain ideologies, they can't trade. Right? I know we are moving in a certain direction in our culture that that might be a threat on the horizon. I know that some, um, some Christian colleges are kind of concerned like if we don't line up with a particular uh, sexual ideology the government requires, we will, could lose money. I think that might be the case. At present trajectory, that probably will be the case. Things might change. I don't know. Um, and if it does, if that is the case, then they'll have to say, are we going to be like most of our Christian brothers and sisters in the rest of the world in history or not who, who had this kind of pressure? So the, the mark of the beast is simply a sign of not having fidelity to the lamb. You don't have to agree with me. I just want you to understand that's what I'm saying. I think that is good biblical discipline of like letting the Bible talk about what this is, right? They're invisible marks, right? As the Spirit, Holy Spirit is an invisible mark to us, not to God. Verse 18, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Okay, what does 666 mean? Oh, my goodness. I get, okay. From some of you already, during this series, I've gotten email about what this means. I get it cool. So, and I say thank you. And you're wrong. No, I didn't say. I said thank you. Uh, so what? No. I, so I, here's my take on this. Okay, we don't. This is one of the things. Like I'm 80 percent on. I don't know. But um, most of the time, we want to go through this process of. Uh, there's an old. There's a thing called gematria, where it's in the in ancient languages. A lot of times, numbers would substitute for letters, right? And so, depending on the the how things something was spelled, it could have a numerical uh, component. So like my name, R-O-G-E-R, might be 841 with all those numbers together or seven or whatever, like whatever. So a lot of people are like, well, that must be what this is talking about. And let's find, let's find good uh, candidates for whose name adds up to 666. And the, typically the best one is Nero, who was an emperor who was terrible, who died a few years before that. And there was a resurrection story about Nero. He actually wasn't died, and he would be coming back to Rome to reclaim his throne. All that's going on in the background. I don't really think that's the case because you would have to change, change the spelling of his name and turn it into Hebrew, which nobody was actually speaking at that time outside the temple, and then adjust it still a little bit more. Maybe, you know, but there's been a lot of other candidates down through the ages. Lots of emperors. Hitler, of course, was. I jokingly said last week Anthony Fauci was. But I'm sure if you look far enough, you will find somebody who says that. And all you have to do, like there's a, one theologian said, well, all you have to do is either, he was joking, add a, if you can't make it work, add a title, and that that doesn't work, change it to Latin or Hebrew or Aramaic, and finally, you'll finally get something. It's like a horoscope, right? It's, so... Um, 
is that offensive to me? Horoscope? Come on, guys, right? <laughs> Read them for entertainment purposes only. Okay. Um, I, I think finding, doing all that's interesting, but I kind of think it misses the point, okay? Anybody paying attention to the book of Revelation to this point knows something. We don't yet have a number that's not symbolic. Every number has been symbolic, like everything else in Revelation, and it has a theological meaning like everything else in Revelation. The Holy Spirit is presented as how many spirits, anybody? No? Seven, yeah, seven spirits. Why? Because that's the number of divine completion. Seven days of creation, seven spirits. In fact, all of Revelation is, is organized in seven cycles of seven things, right? Seven spirits. We talked about 144,000, which is actually a number nobody can count. It, it's, it's a stand-in number for the entire church. It's a nice round number, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, times a nice round number of 1,000. Maybe that's it. Um, we've had, you know, the, the beast has 10 heads signifying a, a completeness. We've said that the time between Christ's resurrection and his return has been shown as 42 months, three and a half years, 1,260 days. Numbers have theological significance. It would be odd if this number were the first one without theological significance, especially since it says, figure it out. Right? This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding figure out or calculate the number. It doesn't say calculate the name or the identity of the beast. It says calculate the number. So what you expect is to say, now you go do that work and come back and tell me what it is. Nope, he says calculate the number. It's 666. Like in the next breath, he tells you the number. It's like, well, what's going on here? Because it seemed like he just told us to to count up the, the number of somebody's name. No. There's a theological meaning to six. Six, six. And it's tied to what we've been seeing in this whole passage. Counterfeiting. The dra- think about it. The dragon is a counterfeit father. He delegates authority. The son, the, the beast of the sea, is a counterfeit son. He receives authority. He's a counterfeit savior. Jesus, remember, is pictured as a lamb who was slain but was alive. That one of the heads of the beast is pictured as one had a mortal wound but is healed. The Holy Spirit is the breath of God who gives life to inanimate things like me and you. The beast of the sea is this breath that gives life to inanimate things like the state. We're going to get later and see that the the so-called whore of Babylon is actually a counterfeit of the bride of Christ. So what does 666 mean? Well, the number of godly perfection would be seven. We've already seen with the Holy Spirit. Seven, seven, seven. This beast looks like a lamb, but it's not quite a lamb. You listen carefully, you say, oh, this is a dragon. 666 is simply the counterfeit number of 777. It's one that looks like a dragon. It looks like a lamb, but really is a dragon. And you say, those are pretty close, especially the way it would be constructed in any numbers back then. You're like, yes, it takes wisdom to discern the difference. Not everything that looks good is good. It requires wisdom, godly wisdom. Let me just give one little train of of application here about you, us, being in our world and how we live together in our world and how we live together in the body of Christ with respect to worldly ideology, 
And it's really good to say this right now because for one brief second, I think, in American history, we're not in an election cycle. Um, but eventually, and not long, there'll be many corners of our world saying, now the most important thing in the universe is happening. Okay. First, part of the ideology that supports the, the, this organized power that the dragon uses is false religion. Right, so that's something that, that most of our brothers and sisters in the world deal with that we don't really deal with that much, unless you include materialism and, you know, radical individualism. So I want to say that, that, and that should inform us how to pray for our friends around the world, right, where the ideology of false religion will combine with a state, like you think about a lot of Islamic states, it's very hard for Christians to live there. There's not freedom, okay? But I, that's not where we live so much, 1 John 4, I put this in your insert, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. They're not all good just because they say they're good. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know that the spirit, know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So just a little call back to the Antichrist thing there. This is first century. John's like, he's already there. He's already here, right? So um, because Antichrist is Satan, right? So every earthly ideology is rooted in this one confession. Jesus is not necessarily the Christ, where the gospel of the kingdom begins and ends with this reality. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed king. Which means every earthly ideology, I'm going to mention some of them, they, they all fail and are incomplete because they don't begin and end where history begins and ends. Likewise, almost every earthly ideology has something true about it because of the gift of what we call common grace. God graces people with wisdom. So this means the Christian is free, and I think obligated and wise to affirm things that are good and true in earthly ideologies where they tend to overlap with the kingdom of God, but deny places where they don't. We affirm and deny. Theologically, we'd say this is antithesis and fulfillment, like the gospel is actually contrary to all those ideologies, but it's also the fulfillment of what those things are really longing for, but they're trying to get there without Jesus. Does that make sense? So the, all these ideologies are longing for something. We say, actually, they're crea- we're created for some things that we're not tasting and touching right now, and people long for the fulfillment of those without saying Jesus is the king. They're longing through it, for it through something else. So... We, as Christians, we want to affirm and deny things. Now, depending on our personality, some of us in this room will be the type of persons who say, I'm going to affirm everything at first until you show me a really good reason why I should deny it. Some of the others of us, including myself in this, would say, yeah, no, I'm going to deny everything at first until you tell me a really good reason why I should accept it. Okay? I'm not seeing either one of those as the right way. And both of those have liabilities, right? The first 
is likely to be gullible. I'm going to affirm everything. It said it was good. Must be good. Okay, that's gullibility. The second, you know what it is, it's cynicism. Everything's bad. There's nothing good about this. And we're denying God's common grace. So just know that you know who you are, and you know who you are, and know the liabilities. Cynicism or gullibility. Uh, but here's, I think here's a better way. 1 Corinthians 1, I uh, put that in your insert. Let's just go down to verse 30. And because of him, this is God, the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We start with this reality. Jesus is Lord. He is the Christ, the beginning and the end. And there's nothing, we get complete righteousness in him. We cannot get righteousness or set-apartness from any earthly ideology. We can't get that. So that lets us be free to examine that. So if you will turn to the back of your bulletin and look at my phenomenal artwork on the bottom, we have this arrow, which is the gospel of the kingdom of God. This is the story, y'all, what we're in, that this world is broken and in desperate need of repair, and God has stepped into this world in the person of Jesus and begun a renewal that will eventually touch everything in all of creation, beginning with those in this room, right, with those who know their need and look to Jesus to be the satisfaction of that need. You are the tip of the spear of that new kingdom, right? That's the story we're in. That's the story that ultimately makes sense of all of our lives. And we're going to get to Revelation 22, and all will be made whole again and beyond its original glory. That's the story we're in. Now, these A, B, C, these things, these are ideologies of the, of the earth. They begin apart from the confession that Jesus is Christ, and they end apart from the confession that Jesus is Christ, but in the middle, they might cross some of the biblical worldview once in a while. And where they do, we want to affirm that. And we want to be rigorously honest where they don't. It means a couple things important for us. It means we don't have to ultimately defend any ideology. It's, it's, it's not the gospel. Right? I'm going to talk about a couple of them in a second here, but we don't have to defend them because all of them have problems. And to uncritically defend something that's got a problem, just because you like it, is, it's just going to end in the wrong place. It means some ideology we might agree with, we could also agree with the critics of it and be like, yeah, that's right. Because actually Jesus' story is the only one that endures. Here's an example. The gospel of the kingdom of God, that story really values industry and creativity and enjoying the, the fruit of our labor. There is a human ideology that crosses that called capitalism. Right? Free markets. And, and it crosses over that arrow someplace. And where it does, we can affirm that. And where it doesn't, we can be honest about that. Because, and we don't have to defend it to death because there are problems. There are problems with it. It's an earthbound reality. Let me give you another one. In the gospel of the kingdom of God, there is a value of generosity and mutual care in community. That's a value. There's an earthly ideology, which tries to get at that, called socialism. 
Now, don't hear me say what I'm not saying. I'm not equating these two. They both, but I am saying they both end and begin and end in the same spot. One of them might cross the Bible storyline a little bit more. That's to be, that's to be argued out, right? But we can affirm things where, where the, actually the Bible storyline crosses it. But realize that we can't give ultimate allegiance to either one because both of them end in the same place apart from Christ being Lord. There's a deep, in the biblical storyline, there's a deep, profound honoring of the image of God and seeking to remedy injustice. That's a Bible virtue that we should fight for. In our culture now, there's a lot of talk, I mean, I mean, some of this is important to some of you, like around so-called critical theory, critical race theory. There are, part, there are places where it crosses the Bible storyline, and we should say, okay. And to be radically honest where it doesn't. And you don't have to defend it to death because it's not ending and beginning in the same place as we are. In the Bible, so I realized, so last, last week I talked about saying Pledge of Allegiance to the flag is like being, you know, the beast of the sea. Uh, it could be if you're giving ultimate allegiance to something, and I, I know that kind of set some of you off. I knew this was coming too, right? So um, in the Bible, there is a deep value of complementarity and life laying down life-giving service of men and women together in marriage. That's true. We can't not see that. There are earthly ideologies called patriarchalism and some forms of feminism uh, that touch on that. And we can we're, we're cross up, we can say, oh, I see that. That makes sense. But don't begin and end in the same place. So we, this is a call to be radically Jesus people, radically kingdom of God people, and say respectively to the authorities of B, I'm sorry, I cannot bow to your idol. I can affirm this part, but I can't affirm that part. This is what it is to be a Christian. In some ways, we should be comforting to everybody and aggravating to everybody. Right, not in an aggravating way, but like, I can't go there. Sorry, Nebuchadnezzar, just can't bow to it. Okay, this is, we just need each other in wisdom and community. There is a sense, I'm going to do two more, and then we're going to go to the communion table. There is a biblical, I mean, in the kingdom of God, there's a picture of what we call biblical shalom. That is wholeness and human flourishing centered in Jesus Christ and his redemptive work. There's a corollary to that in our world, an earthly uh, ideology called, sometimes pejoratively, I don't mean it, but called social justice. Sometimes the values of what so-called social justice actually does cross to the kingdom of God. That's great. We want to affirm that. But we can't affirm that there's actual human flourishing apart from Jesus. Right? There's temporary flourishing. We want to love our neighbor really well. But that's actually not the biblical value of sh- picture of shalom. We've got to be, just be honest about it. There's a, in the Bible storyline, there's an honoring of the image of God and our God-given agency in this world to make decisions. And this is probably, I mean, this is probably the most powerful ideology in our age, since about the 17th century. And that is the ideology of individualism. That I am an individual, I am accountable to no one. 
I make my, I play my, my own rules. There's nothing outside of me that can tell me what's wrong or right. Now, some parts of individualism cross into the biblical storyline, and we can affirm where we, you know, I see agency there. I see the image of God and responsible decision-making, all that kind of stuff. But it begins and ends somewhere else. So, again, stay on the arrow, affirm things that cross it. When it doesn't, when it's out, we say, you know what, even though, even though I'm inclined to be a fan of this, I see its liabilities. And so as a church, right, as a community, this is how we live together in an ideological world. We live in the arrow. We live in the arrow. And we try not to get too far from it. And then we, we fail at that, right, because it's, it's, it's hard to figure this out. That, that's why there's a call to wisdom. In Revelation 12, we're told how we overcome the dragon. They overcame the dragon because of the blood of the lamb, Jesus' redemptive work for us, the word of their testimony, that's the gospel, that's the arrow, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. That's the willingness to say, sorry, Nebuchadnezzar, I cannot. I can't go there, and I'm not going to defend this ideology because at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's beginning and ending apart from the testimony that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, this is a call to wisdom, but we don't always have it, guys. I'll admit that. We make errors. We will be blind in some ways. We'll be unwittingly sometimes submitting to the ideologies of our age. And then we need to repent of that when we see it. We don't always have wisdom. But we do always have his name on our foreheads. It's a call to wisdom for us. But it's a call to wisdom who... Uh, for those who already have another who is their wisdom, right? So when we fail in our wisdom of figuring all this out, as we will, we don't have to, we can lean on Jesus and say, Lord, uh, you knew I needed wisdom. That's why you became wisdom for me. Even when our commitment to him fails, even when we are not able to be faithful and endure, we have one who endures faithfully for us. And that's why we go to the communion table on a weekly basis. Because we need wisdom we don't have but he's happy to give. We need a faithful endurance that we just cannot muster up on our own. And he says, you know what? I've already endured faithfully for you. Hang on to me. I will give you energy. I will give you wisdom and faithful endurance. Let me pray, and I'll invite us to the table. If you're in Christ, I want you to come to the table.